So today we're going to continue our series, Liberty in Jesus. Liberty in Jesus. And the title of my sermon today is From Slave to Heir. From Slave to Heir. So if you will, go ahead and turn your Bibles. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. From Slave to Heir. So as you're turning there, I'm just going to give you an intro here. But in Greek and Roman cultures of old, families would entrust their children into the hands of slaves. And what that would mean is, is if there was a family who had some slaves who lived with them, there would be slaves who would be entrusted with the care of that family's children. So that would be in terms of their education, their discipline, and all of their welfare, and anything else that the child needed in their growth process. And even though the child was a part of the family, the child was actually subservient to the slave in whom the child was entrusted. So here we're going to see as Paul makes this comparison and this analogy, we're going to see that he's pulling from this ancient tradition of slaves um, raising the children of these families. And what you're going to find is, is that the status of the child in the family was really no different than that of the slave because they both had a master. The child's master was the slave, and the family, the head of the family was the master of the slave themselves. So if you will, stand with me as we read God's Word, and we honor His Word today. And we're going to begin in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 4. And you can read along with me as we read. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your gracious and your precious word, and Lord, we're thankful that there is true equality among humanity, that our social status, that our IQ, that our skin color, none of those things determine our access to you, but you truly did die for the whole world, and the Bible teaches, Lord, we're so thankful that any who come whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And God, we are thankful for that. We're thankful, Lord, that the uh, ground is level at the foot of the cross. So today, Jesus, as we explore, God, our status and our standing in the family of God as sons and daughters, I pray, God, that you would encourage our people, that you would, God, bring a passion in our hearts, that more would come to know you, that those who are out in the world who are still under that old slave master of sin and are still under that guardian of the law, God, that you would use us to share the gospel with them, that they may come from out from under those things and receive your holiness and your righteousness. So today, God, we entrust this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So the first thing that I want us to look at today, if you're taking notes, is in the hold of slavery. In the hold of slavery. And really, verse 7 of chapter 4 in Galatians is really going to give you the summary of what this passage is about. In verse 7, it says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then God has made you an heir. There is a progression that God brings his children through. We begin as a slave, then we become a son, and by virtue of being a son or a daughter, we become an heir. So that is going to be the essence and the overall theme of this sermon. So number one, in the hold of slavery. We see that in the first three verses of chapter four. It says, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Here he's going back to that analogy that I shared with you to begin with, in that in regard to a master, both the child and the slave both fall under a guardian or a master, someone who rules over them, someone who dictates what they do. And here he's using the idea of a child as comparable to that of a slave. And there's really two different ways that you can look at this. Number one is in the historical events that have taken place in human history. So the first thing that I want you to think about is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel back when God promised Abraham that he would give him a nation and that through his seed the world would be blessed. And then we find that God indeed uh, blesses Abraham with this massive great number of people. As they went into slavery in Egypt, even the Pharaoh said, man, these people are uh, multiplying so quickly. Eventually, they're going to become so powerful that they overthrow us and take over Egypt. So they begin to enslave them even harder and stronger to the point where then God calls Moses to lead the children of Israel out into the wilderness. And as the children of Israel come out of Egypt into the wilderness, God calls them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God makes the Mosaic Covenant with the nation of Israel. And he tells them, if you will live by these laws and you will obey these laws and you will follow me, then you will be my people and I will bless you. And that was at that moment when Israel fell under this master. They fell under this guardian or this tutor. And as Israel is living under the law... They are required to obey the observances, the rituals, the, the, the cleanliness rituals. They are um, obligated to sacrifice at the Day of Atonement. They are obligated to the priests. All of these things they fall under, and it is seen and known as a guardian. The Bible teaches us that the law was given in order to expose man's sinfulness. And man lived under that law until the completion of time when the Lord Jesus came on the scene. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he then gave believers the ability to come out from under that guardian known as the law and to be able to have the full holiness of Christ based upon his shed blood on the cross. And that's the first uh, really analogy that you're seeing here that this comparison is of a child or a slave. And there's a moment in a child's life when they reach maturity when they are no longer considered a child, but they are considered an adult. They are considered someone who can now manage themselves. And this is that analogy that Paul is using. The nation of Israel would have been like the child. They would have been under the tutor. They would have been living under the law. But then at the fullness of time when Jesus came, they crossed over into adulthood because they were then able to receive the fullness of God's holiness in salvation. Well, the second way that you can look at this is personal to each and every one of us today. So in the same way that the nation of Israel, as they were coming through the wilderness and as they were living under the law, were under a guardian or a tutor, the same way you were before you came to Christ. Before you came to Christ, you were in a place and in a position 
where you were relying on your own ability in comparison to the law of God. In other words, you were relying on your own goodness to get to heaven because there was nothing else for you when you had not accepted Christ. So as you were living life, you were saying, okay, I'm good, I'm fine, nothing wrong. And one thing that people have to admit to before they can be saved is that they're sinners and that they're in need. And a lot of people never get to that point because they think they've got it under control. In our evangelism explosion classes, one very important question that we ask when we're sharing the gospel is, if you were to stand before God today and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And we've come to the conclusion that there's really only two answers you can give there. Now, there is a variation of the two answers, but there's really only two. There's one answer you can give that is a works-based answer. And there's another answer that you can give that is a grace-based answer. So when someone is asked that question, if they say, you know, I think I'm, I've been a good person and I've tried really hard to live up to uh, the law and try to be good and try to help others, that's a works-based answer. If you're someone here who stands before God and you say, well, God, I think you should let me in because I've received Jesus, because I've trusted in his holiness, that's the grace-based answer. And in reality, before we come to Christ, we are in this camp of these works-based answers. And that's our mentality and our understanding. And here Paul is saying that's when you were a child. That's when you were still under the guardianship of the law. In other words, you could not go no higher than the law. And you could never meet the demands of the law before you came to Christ. But when you came to Christ, you were no longer a child, but now you become a son or an adult. Now you move into this place where you are no longer under that guardianship, but you are in full relationship with Jesus. And because Jesus fulfilled the law by his holiness and he sealed the deal with his death and resurrection, you now can have salvation outside of your own good works. You can now have salvation because of the goodness of Jesus not because of your own goodness. So you can see that this same analogy applies both ways. In verse 3, when you look at verse 3 in Galatians chapter 4, it says this, In the same way we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of this world. So he's going back to this idea that before we came to Christ, in the comparison to children, before they come to adulthood, we were in subjection to and at the mercy of, of the elements of this world. And as I studied this phrase, the elements of this world, many different commentaries said different things about this phrase and about this Greek word. But the exact same Greek word is used again in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. If you want to jump ahead, we'll read that real quick. It says, But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Verse 8 tells us what those weak and worthless elements are. But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. So here we understand that these elemental things or the elements of this world is really the religion of humanism. The religion of humanity trying to be God's. The, the uh, achievement of humanity in the idea that humanity within himself can be everything that he or she needs. And if you look back at the Renaissance period of history, that was really the, uh, the amplification of humanism. Because if you think about all of the art, all of the music, many of the things that were done in the Renaissance, it was all about the glorification of man. 
What can man do with his mind? What can man do with his body? How beautiful can mankind become? And it is the idea of humanistic religion. Well, here what he's saying is, is that before you came to Christ, when you were still a child, before you came to that point of maturity in knowing the Lord Jesus, you were in bondage to the religion of humanism. And think about it. The religion of humanism is this. I'm good enough, and I don't need God. I can do it on my own. Because the whole essence of Scripture and the theme of the Bible is, is that man can't be good enough. Over and over again, you see these heroes, these apparent heroes in Scripture, who fall, who mess up. You see Adam, the very first man, created in God's image without sin, fail and fall. You see Noah, after the ark lands, he sins and he fails. You see Abraham, usurp God's authority, take his handmaid as his wife and try to have a child because he didn't believe God could do it through Sarah. You see David cheat and take another man's wife and get her pregnant and then have her husband killed. You see this over and over again. You see Peter deny the Lord Jesus three times. Hey, the Bible's trying to communicate something to us. And the Bible is saying man can't do it on his own. Mankind cannot achieve what only God can achieve but the religion of humanism says that man can. And I can prove this just by referring to different lines that people say a lot nowadays. Hey, why don't you just follow your heart? Hey, you know what? If you believe enough in yourself, you can do anything. There is no obstacle too great that you cannot surpass if you don't just put your mind to it. You know what that is? That's hogwash. Hey, as Christians, we're here to say you aren't good enough. And you're probably saying, well, Ben, I thought you were going to encourage me today. And now I'm going to have to go home with my head hung low because you're telling me I'm not good enough. Well, listen, there's good news. You're not good enough, but Jesus is. Hey, you know what? You don't have to let the burden of holiness and perfection ride on your shoulders. Because guess what? You can't live up to it. But he did perfectly. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law in a way that we could never do. And by fulfilling the law and being perfect, he was tempted yet without sin. He was able to die on the cross and shed his blood because he was fully man, and he was able to be your perfect substitute. So now, when I stand before God and he asks me that question, why should I let you bend into my heaven? I can say, because Jesus died and rose again, and I've trusted in him by faith. Come on in. And that's the only way anybody gets into heaven, because you can't be good enough. So here, this idea of humanism, before you knew Christ, that's the only hope you had was your own goodness. But with Jesus, you have his righteousness and his hope. Isaiah speaks very well of idolatry in Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 9. Here, you can really see idolatry and human religion as one and the same. Idolatry is essentially human beings creating things with their hands to worship. Things that they make with their own hands, the sweat of their brow, and they'll set it up and they say, okay, now thing, save me. It's folly, it's, it's insanity is really what it is. And this is what Isaiah is going to address here. Listen to this. Isaiah 9, chapter 44. All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. 
Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who makes a god or casts a metal image that benefits no one? Look, all its worshipers will be put to shame. And the craftsmen are humans. They all will assemble and stand. They all will be startled and put to shame. The iron worker labels over the coals, shapes the idol with hammers, and works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human form, like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. He cuts down the cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire, and he roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it, Save me, for you are my god. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their minds so they cannot understand. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it on the fire. Also, I baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Should I make something detestable with the rest of it? Should I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray, and he cannot rescue himself or say, Isn't there a lie in my right hand? What he's saying here is, Isaiah is saying, How can a human being seriously think in a logical way that you can make something with your hands and that very same thing can be used to start a fire and that very same thing can be used to cook meat over and it burns up and it disappears, but I can take just a block of it, a piece of it, and I can make it look like a god and I can set it up in a temple and I can worship it and I can say, save me, and think that it can actually save me. He's saying the very one who made the idol gets tired. He needs water to drink. He needs food to eat. And if the person making the idol does not nourish his body with what God provides, then he can't even make the idol. It's absolute insanity to think that we under our own power can save ourselves, whether it be through our own intellect, our own abilities, or even through an idol that we make with our own hands. So guys, that number one is in the hold of slavery. But the next thing that I want you to see, if you're taking notes, is this. In the love of family. So now things are starting to get really good. In the love of family. And we're going to see that in verses 4 through 6. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. At this point in the passage, the status has changed. If you notice in those first three verses, we're talking about a child and a slave. And we're talking about how there's not much difference between the two. But now you get to these next three verses, and you begin to hear this word son mentioned. 
someone who is officially a part of the family. Did you hear what it said there in verse 4? When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here Paul is still using some Roman and Greek culture and even some Hebrew culture because in all three of those cultures, there was a definite point in a child's life when they crossed from being a child to being an adult. When they crossed from that time of immaturity to maturity. Many of you have heard of the term bar mitzvah, and that is the Hebrew celebration of when a young man officially becomes a man. A boy officially becomes a man. And that usually happens on the first Sabbath after their 12th birthday. So here Paul is using this analogy to say that when Jesus came on the scene, when the fullness and the completion of time came, that Jesus came on the scene, he brought the children of Israel and all of those who do not know Christ from the status of slave and child to the potential of the status of son. In other words, when Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose again, he paid the price for our sins that when we trust him by faith, we leave behind childhood and we enter into adulthood. We leave behind the status of a slave and we enter into the status of a son, of part of the family. And not just a, a ceremonial part of the family or not just the kind of part of the family that, well, yeah, they're on the periphery and we say we're related, but you know we're not really because they're adopted. But no, the adoption that takes place says that we have full rights as sons of the king as daughters of the king. It is as though we are his biological children. That's how stern and how fixed and how assured our rights in Christ as his children are when we come to know him. The Romans would even have a ceremony when their children would cross from childhood to adulthood where they would take all their toys and they would basically burn their toys. And it was like a sacrifice to the God of Apollos because they were leaving behind the things of a child and they were embracing the things of an adult. And as Paul is using this analogy, he knew that the people who heard this would know quite well. I know that in our society today, we don't have as definite of, of a way of knowing when someone crosses over. You know, in some people it's based on maturity level or it's based upon the expectation of the family. Some families, they want their child out of the house when they turn 18. Are there any amens there? Oh, I didn't see any. I didn't hear any. All right. So, but you're thinking it. I know you are. But then some families will let their kids live as long as they want to live there. And that's okay too, right? But in these societies, it was very definite and it was very defined. So in verse 4, we see that when God's appointed time came, he sent his son Jesus, born of a woman. Now, why in the world would Paul mention that Jesus was born of a woman. Well, here, listen, we're talking about salvation. We're talking about this transition from being under the guardian of the law to being free from the law. And listen, Jesus could not have taken your place on the cross if he had not been born of a woman. What that means is, is that Jesus was fully man. Now, we believe doctrinally, this is orthodox Christianity, we believe that Jesus is 100% man and that he is 100% God. He's not 50-50, okay? That would be heresy to say that. He is 100% man, and he is 100% God. And that's the only way that he could have died in your place. God can't bleed. God can't die. God took on human form and became, came in our likeness in order that he might pay the fullness of the price that was due 
for our sins to quench the wrath of God. So not only was he fully man, it says born of a woman, but he was born under the law, if you see that in that next part. Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4 say this, For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Did you hear that? God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That doesn't mean Jesus is sinful, but he came in the likeness of man. He became man in order to save man. If you remember one of the names of Jesus in the scriptures, Emmanuel, remember what that means? God with us. God came in human flesh and dwelt among mankind. He was God with us. And because he was with us, because he took on human flesh, he was able to die on the cross and, and, and pay the full penalty for our sins in our place so that we could then have the right to become sons and daughters of the king. Verse 5, we go on down and we see why he did that, why God sent his son, and it was to redeem those under the law. See, he was able to redeem us who were under the law because he perfectly fulfilled the law. And see, if he had just been man, if he had just been 100% man, there is no way that he could have fulfilled the law because he would have been a sinner just like us. But if he was only 100% God, then he could not have died on a cross and bled in our place. But because Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, not only could he fully pay the price for our sins and bleed and die for us, but he also was able to be perfect because he's God and fulfill the law in its entirety. He was the perfect sacrifice, no matter which way you looked at it. He fulfilled the demand and the wrath of God by dying, and he fulfilled the holiness of the law because he was God and he cannot sin. And that is the greatness of our God and who he is. That is why we're able to be in the family of God today. That is how we're able to come out from under the bondage of the law because God fulfilled the law in Jesus Christ who died for us. In verse 6, we see that as sons, as we have left this position of slavery and childhood and we've entered into this position of family and sonship and adulthood, we now understand that because of that, we get the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that we're co-heirs with Jesus? Which means we get everything Jesus gets. When we got saved, God is so awesome that he was able to give us his nature. He was able to indwell us by the person of the Holy Spirit. We're able to enter such a closeness with the Father because of what Jesus did that we can even call him Abba. And what Abba is translated would be Papa or Daddy. It's that closeness and that intimacy that we now have with God the Father because of what Jesus did. We can call him Daddy. We can call him Papa because he died for us, because he willingly gave his life for us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. 
If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. And that brings me to the very last point and probably the best part of the whole day. In the assurance of an inheritance. If you're taking notes, write that down. In the assurance of an inheritance. And we see that in verse 7. Let's read verse 7 again of Galatians chapter 4. So you are no longer a slave. Remember, before we came to Christ, before the children of Israel came to the, the fullness of time where they could receive Christ. Before we came to Christ, we were slaves, right? So what he's saying is he's showing us this progression. Before we were slaves, but now a son. Did you hear that? So we say now we're no longer slaves, we're no longer children, but we're sons. We're part of the family of God. We're part of the family so much that we can call him Papa, we can call him Daddy. We have that closeness and that intimacy with him. But now he takes it a step further. Listen to this. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Well, here we have the idea that a son or a daughter receives the full benefits of being someone's child. When their parents pass away and they leave them their estate, because they are children, they are guaranteed to inherit what their parents left them. And right here, what he's saying is, is that when you come to Christ by faith, trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection, you're not just kind of a part of the family. You're not just kind of, well, you know, you're not really my son or my daughter, but I'll kind of take you, take you under my wing for a little while. No, what he's saying is, is it's as though you are the biological child of the king of the universe. You are so much his child that you have the same benefits and the same guarantees as his son, Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. How God can take someone who was once a slave, hopeless in their sin, at the mercy of human religion and bring them to the place where now they are co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, what an awesome, awesome understanding of who God is and how beautiful he is. We are his sons and his daughters to the fullest extent. Nothing left to be figured out or determined. When we look at Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see here really where God brought us from. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hey, listen, dead means dead. All right? And unless you're in the, the dead-raising business, usually when something or someone is dead, they're not coming back to life. They're done, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our slavery. We were dead under the law. We were dead and no hope, no ability to come out. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. It says, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Hey, there, were a time, there was a time when you were a child under wrath. But God, verse 4, and I said in the, in the first service, I love the buts in the Bible. And I actually talked to Alan. He said, I think there's 50-something times in the Bible where you can find that phrase, but God. Now listen, I want you to think about this for a moment. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were slaves to our sin. We were slaves under a law that we could not uphold. We were hopeless, but God. Now I want you to hear what God was able to do. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ. 
even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. It says he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Now listen, that's where that that co-heir comes in. That's where that thing that we're going to get the inheritance of God comes in. Not only did he save us and make us alive, he didn't just stop there. But it says he seated us in heaven with Christ. We inherit eternal life that is in the new heaven and the new earth. Not only do we get made alive again, but we get the full inheritance of God the Father. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And this is those wonderful two verses that we all know. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray.